Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 257 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the amazing story of Iron Mike Malloy. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In January of 1932, an Irishman named Michael Malloy was living in New York City. He was a mysterious man, and not much was known about him, but he did something that would leave a lasting legacy. As a result, he'd come to be known as Iron Mike, Mike the Durable, and the Juggernaut. So who was Iron Mike? What happened to him? And what earned him his amazing nicknames? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what should we say to begin? This will be a two-part story, and it is indeed an amazing story for a whole bunch of reasons. Today, we'll be introducing Iron Mike Malloy, and next Friday, we'll be telling you about what happened to his friends. Also, this is one of our true crime episodes. I don't do too many of these because they sometimes aren't as family-friendly as most of the mysteries we cover, but we do do true crime occasionally. And today's mystery involves a murder, but don't worry, it's not a bloody murder. There are no knives or guns. And in any event, we always keep things clinical and don't dwell on sensationalistic details. So this will not be a gruesome episode. In fact, someone could make a really funny black comedy murder movie about this story. Also, I should mention that this mystery has been solved. So we'll be giving you the full story as it is known today. And I'll tell you up front, there will be multiple twists in the story. It goes in some very unexpected directions. So you can look forward to that. Let's set the stage by talking about when and where our mystery takes place. What should listeners know? Our story is set in New York City at the end of the Prohibition era. Prohibition is the name for a period between 1920 and 1933 when the United States banned the manufacturing, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. It didn't criminalize the drinking of alcoholic beverages, but it sought to keep anybody from drinking by banning the manufacture, importation, transportation, and sale of such beverages. Since these activities were prohibited during the time period, the period itself is referred to as prohibition. Why did the period of prohibition happen? What led up to it? Humans have been drinking alcoholic beverages since prehistoric times. Currently, the earliest confirmed alcoholic beverages date back 9,000 years to 7,000 BC in China. However, they likely go back further because if you leave fruit and fruit juices out, they naturally ferment, and even wild animals eat fermented fruit. Um, but we know that humans have been deliberately making alcoholic beverages since at least 7,000 BC, which places them in the Neolithic period, or the New Stone Age. And people have been making alcoholic beverages ever since. They were made in ancient Mesopotamia, in ancient Egypt, in ancient Israel, and basically ancient everywhere else in the Old World. 
a perennial problem, especially as societies became more prosperous and able to make alcoholic beverages in larger quantities, is that humans tend to abuse them. As we'll hear, the 3,000-year-old Bible contains multiple warnings against abusing them. And though, as we'll also hear, Christianity has a place for consuming alcohol, in the 19th century, various groups of Protestants began opposing the consumption of alcohol. Now, it, it, it wasn't all Protestants that did so. But in various parts of the Christian world, sizable numbers of Protestants began to oppose alcohol consumption, arguing that it causes serious harm to society, and they began advocating legal measures to uh, be used to prohibit its use. This occurred in various nations that were Protestant-majority countries like Finland, Norway, Iceland, Canada, and the United States. It even happened in the Russian Empire and the early Soviet Union, despite the fact that these were not Protestant, but historically Orthodox and later atheistic under communism. In the period between 1907 and 1920, each of them enacted a form of prohibition, though they have all since retracted it, and most of them did so very quickly in the 1920s. How did that play out here in the United States? The United States is a historically Protestant country, having been founded principally by immigrants from the United Kingdom. And in particular, many early American immigrants came from Protestant groups that were dissenters from the Church of England, which was more traditional and didn't have a problem with alcohol. So the dissenters tended to be the kinds of people who would be inclined to oppose the consumption of alcohol. In American politics, people who wanted to ban alcoholic beverages were known as the dries, and people who wanted to allow them were known as the wets. Over the course of the 19th century, the dries grew in strength. They ultimately determined that they wanted to take the issue out of the hands of individual states and pass a constitutional amendment that would prohibit alcoholic beverages nationwide. In America, passing an amendment to the U.S. Constitution is quite an undertaking, which is why it's only happened 27 times in the last 235 years. What has to happen to amend the Constitution? In basic terms, you could call a new constitutional convention to draft amendments, but that has never happened, in part because the thought of a new constitutional convention is too scary. It could, if you call a new convention, it could do anything. It could scrap the whole constitution and write something completely different. So instead, the process that's actually been used involves the following. You need to get two-thirds of the U.S. House of Representatives and two-thirds of the U.S. Senate to propose an amendment. And then you need to get three-quarters of the state legislatures to ratify it. Well, by 1917, the Dries had enough political clout in Congress that Congress proposed an amendment, and it read, Section 1. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all the territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. Section 2. The Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Section 3. 
This article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of the several states, as provided in the Constitution, within seven years from the date of the submission hereof to the states by the Congress. It was now up to the states to ratify the amendment if they chose, and by two years later, or 1919, 36 of the 48 states had ratified it, meeting the three-quarters requirement, and the 18th Amendment was thus added to the U.S. Constitution. It still required implementing legislation, though, and in late 1919, the U.S. Congress passed what is known as the Volstead Act to enable the amendment to be enforced. The Volstead Act was passed despite the fact that President Woodrow Wilson vetoed it. And on January 17, 1920, prohibition went into effect in the United States. Did this mean that Christians who use wine for Holy Communion could no longer use it in their liturgies? No, this was still permitted. I can't imagine that prohibition would have gone into effect if that was not the case. The outcry from groups like Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, and Jewish people, all of whom use alcoholic wine in their services, um, would have been enormous. Uh, people would have viewed this as a violation of their freedom of religion, which is guaranteed by the First Amendment to the Constitution. That argument arguably wouldn't hold legal weight, I mean, if you're amending the Constitution, but people would still view it as an outrage and an infringement of their religious liberty, so there was an exception for the religious use of wine. There also was an exception for the medical use of wine. Doctors could prescribe it for patients, and many did. But America was now embarking on a grand experiment that involved massive social engineering, and its advocates claimed that it would benefit the nation in numerous ways as a result of forcing people to stay sober. How well did the experiment work? This is disputed, uh, but the popular impression is that prohibition was a dismal failure, that it didn't work, it just drove drinking underground, that it led to a flowering of organized crime, which still plagues us today, that people drank even more than they did before, and that this led to a widespread culture of disrespect for the law. However, I have encountered modern historians, at least some of them, uh, arguing that it did actually lead to a reduction in the amount of alcohol consumption, and it's possible that both things are true. Maybe most people did stop drinking, resulting in an overall decrease in alcohol consumption, and maybe those who didn't stop drinking went on binges and these people started drinking even more. Whatever the truth may be, prohibition was extremely unpopular with a broad segment of the population. For example, in her book, The Poisoner's Handbook, Deborah Bloom writes, Only two years into the Great Prohibition Experiment, the state of New York was ready to give it up. Where were the high moral standards, the uplifted culture, and the return to pre-war innocence promised by supporters of the 18th Amendment? So far, the effects seemed almost the opposite, considering the street shootings, the increasingly brazen speakeasy trade, and the mounting deaths from poisoned alcohol. We should say a word about what Bloom means by poisoned alcohol. Uh, you see, alcohol, all alcohol, is made out of three elements. Hydrogen, or element one, carbon, or element six, and oxygen, or element eight. But there's more than one type of alcohol. The familiar type of alcohol that you'll find in wine, beer, and spirits 
is known as ethyl alcohol or ethanol, and the human body metabolizes it pretty quickly. But alcohol is used for many purposes. It has industrial uses, such as being used as a solvent or a fuel. It has medical uses and is found in some elixirs. It's also a disinfectant. It has personal care uses and is found in many perfumes. Frankly, it's an extremely useful molecule that can be used in bunches of ways that have nothing to do with drinking. For a long time, the government had been taxing alcoholic beverages as a way of making money. Liquor taxes are a kind of tax that are known as sin taxes. But what about alcohol's other uses? People who were using alcohol for industrial purposes didn't want to pay liquor taxes since they weren't using alcohol as liquor, and so, by law, they didn't have to pay those taxes. That made industrial alcohol cheaper than liquor. And so, people could evade the liquor taxes by purchasing industrial alcohol and drinking it instead. Consequently, even before Prohibition, the U.S. government required that alcohol used for industrial purposes be denatured. Does that mean changing the nature of the ethanol molecule in the industrial alcohol? No, industrial alcohols could still contain ethyl alcohol, but they needed to alter it in some way to discourage people from using it in beverages. Eventually, they developed more than 70 ways of doing this, and sometimes it involved things like adding substances to the alcohol to make it smell bad and to discourage people from drinking it due to the smell, or to make it taste horrible, meaning even more horrible than alcohol normally tastes, or to make it toxic and unfit for human consumption. One of the most effective ways of doing the latter was adding a different kind of alcohol to the ethanol. This alternative type of alcohol is known as methyl alcohol or methanol, and methanol is toxic to human beings. When our bodies process it, it breaks down into formaldehyde and formic acid. Formaldehyde is used in the embalming process to preserve dead bodies because it makes the body's cells inedible to microorganisms. And formic acid is used by insects to defend themselves. Wood ants, for example, spray formic acid on attackers to defend their nests. And it's what's in bee stings. You don't want either formaldehyde or formic acid in your body because they both do damage to it. And so methyl alcohol is toxic to humans. It will cause you to go blind. Literally, you lose your sight. And it can kill you. So you could, for example, you know, murder someone by giving them methyl alcohol to drink instead of ethyl alcohol. If you ever need a a way to remember which kind of alcohol is poisonous and which isn't, ethanol with an E is the kind that's edible, while methanol with an M is the kind that will murder you. Ethanol is edible, methanol is murder, which is a little bit of foreshadowing for you today. Incidentally, uh, methyl, methanol is also known as wood alcohol because it's commonly derived from wood instead of from the fruit or grain that ethyl alcohol is usually made from. And because it's toxic, putting methanol into industrial alcohols was a common way of denaturing them. 
What happened when Prohibition started and drinkable ethanol suddenly became unavailable? Bootleggers decided to take the denatured industrial alcohols that they could get and renature them. This meant finding ways to get the horrible smells, tastes, and poisons out of them so that they could be drunk. Uh, because there was still a huge market for alcoholic beverages. Loads of people weren't about to stop drinking just because the government was making it harder. And enterprising people, known as bootleggers, opened up covert drinking establishments called speakeasies. Originally, the term speakeasy meant speak quietly. And in 19th century British slang, it became attached to places where you'd want to speak easy or quietly because an illegal activity like smuggling was going on. So when Prohibition started, covert saloons became known as speakeasies, and you'd often have to use a password or say, so-and-so sent me, in order to get into them. How popular were speakeasies? They were extremely popular. I've seen it estimated in several places that New York City had 30,000 speakeasies operating in it, and I saw one estimate that placed the number as high as 100,000. They ranged all up and down the social spectrum with upper-class people, including politicians like Jimmy Walker, the mayor of New York City, going to lavish high-class speakeasies, and people at the bottom of society, including homeless people, patronizing disgusting hole-in-the-wall speakeasies. Occasionally, speakeasies would get raided by the police, but most of the time they operated without interference because police corruption, of course, and because policemen themselves were customers and didn't want to shut them down. But in order to operate, the speakeasies had to get alcohol to sell, and one of the ways they did that was by trying to renature industrial alcohols. How effective were they at doing that? It varied, but not always well. Uh, Deborah Bloom explains. Even by federal estimates, Two-thirds of the so-called whiskey, as described by the Treasury Department, currently sold in city drink establishments, was denatured alcohol, redistilled to remove the worst of the poisons, colored a golden brown with food coloring, and completely dangerous. Twelve people had died in one month from rum purchased in the Red Hook neighborhood of Brooklyn. The mixture sold from the back room of a corner store for 50 cents a pint was undiluted wood alcohol. Even as such deaths were reported, people continued to drink, defiantly, mockingly, determinedly, until by 1922, arrests for public drunkenness in New York City had topped 11,000, compared to a mere 7,028 in the year before Prohibition took effect. The number of deaths due to poisoned alcohol grew with time, which caused New York City's medical examiners like Charles Norris and Alexander Gettler to go absolutely ape. Because every time somebody keeled over because of methyl alcohol poisoning, they had to deal with it. They thus were acutely aware of the problems being caused by the use of wood alcohol that was being repurposed as beverages, and they wanted the government to stop putting it in, in, in industrial alcohols so that people would stop dying. And did the government listen to them? Absolutely not. In fact, Deborah Bloom explains. The rumors began in the summer of 1926. Government chemists were developing a secret project in the aid of prohibition, people whispered. Dry officials issued warnings that drinking was about to become more risky. 
the Great War had taught people that chemists could be more dangerous than other scientists. A new chemist's war was brewing, it was said, pitting government scientists against those employed by the country's powerful bootlegging empires. It was no secret that the federal government seethed with frustration over the flouting of anti-alcohol laws. When Prohibition went into effect, backed by a constitutional amendment no less, its supporters had assumed citizens would, however reluctantly, obey the law. The succeeding years had proved them wrong. Many now drank more than ever, more recklessly, more adventurously. In Washington, D.C., the police reported nearly a tenfold increase in drunk driving arrests since the legislation was enacted. The illegal alcohol trade had not only flourished, but grown more sophisticated. Amid indications that the bootlegger chemists were gaining on the denaturing front, dry advocates in Congress demanded tougher measures and better poisons. Their position was that if Americans persisted in flouting the law, if they continued to evade the hard-working law enforcement agents, then perhaps the best way to enforce prohibition was to make alcohol so deadly that even the sellout chemists working for the crime syndicates couldn't rescue it. If alcohol was truly undrinkable, the argument went, even the most devoted boozer would have to give it up. And those summer 1926 rumors? They were absolutely true. The government was experimenting with new denaturing agents, planning to require much greater amounts of methyl alcohol in the denaturing process. Other poisons were under review as well, including benzene, kerosene, and brucine, a plant alkaloid closely related to strychnine. So this brings us to what could be considered our first twist in today's story. Believe it or not, the U.S. government was looking for ways to make alcohol even more toxic, knowing that more of its own citizens would die as a result. The U.S. government was deliberately poisoning the U.S. population. And the problem got particularly acute towards the end of 1926. Back to Deborah Bloom. As the year pulled toward its close on a festively lit Christmas Eve, a man came running, make that weaving, into Bellevue's emergency room, claiming that Santa Claus had chased him from Fifth Avenue with a baseball bat. He was among the 65 people who came to the hospital in two days, all sickened by holiday celebrations. The problem, Charles Norris reported, was primarily poisoned liquor. The latest round of hooch available in the city had not cleaned up well. It remained an unusually nasty soup of government-added impurities and methyl alcohol. Eight people died at Bellevue and 15 others were admitted. Two days after Christmas, 23 were dead and 89 hospitalized. Most of them later were packed into the alcoholic ward at Bellevue, hallucinating, vomiting, blinded by wood alcohol, bundled onto cots like so many sticks of kindling. Chief Medical Examiner Norris was infuriated, and on December 28th, he issued the following statement. The government knows it is not stopping drinking by putting poison in alcohol. It knows what the bootleggers are doing with it, and yet it continues its poisoning processes, heedless of the fact that people determined to drink are daily absorbing that poison. Knowing this to be true, the United States government must be charged with the moral responsibility for the deaths that poisoned liquor causes, although it cannot be held legally responsible. But the government only doubled down. The Treasury Department announced that it had decided to require that denatured alcohol be more poisonous. The amount of methyl alcohol in all formulas would be doubled at a minimum. Mostly that meant going from the traditional 2% to 4% of contents. But if that didn't serve, then the Prohibition chemists had developed a special Formula One, which called for 5 to 10% methyl alcohol. 
So the government knew that they were killing their own citizens, and they wanted to make the alcohol even more poisonous. Why would people continue to drink alcohol with these being the risks? There were a number of reasons. One of them was that they didn't really trust the government warnings. The government lies and uses propaganda and scare tactics, and people knew it. So they viewed the new warnings as more of the same and didn't think that the new alcohol was as dangerous as the government was trying to make it out to be. Also, bootleggers had been cleaning up denatured alcohol for years at this point, and they assumed that the bootleggers would continue to have success. Further, the speakeasy culture had become a glamorous subculture. It was hip and sophisticated and officially forbidden, making it forbidden fruit. Also, people just want to have a drink and relax, and some, unfortunately, had become physically dependent on alcohol and couldn't easily stop. So the drinking continued, and in 1927, more than 700 New Yorkers died as a result. How did defenders of the policy of poisoning the alcohol defend it? By saying it was the drinker's own fault, you know, blame the victim. While they might not technically be breaking the law, at least in many places since the 18th Amendment did not forbid buying or consuming alcohol, they were supporting an illegal enterprise, the bootleggers. Further, many dry advocates viewed consuming alcohol as immoral, and so they thought that the drinkers deserved what they got. So there was that too. However, there was pushback on this idea. Deborah Bloom states, There is practically no pure whiskey available any place in the city, medical examiner Norris warned. My opinion, based on actual experience of the medical examiner staff and myself, is that there is actually no prohibition. All the people who drank before prohibition are drinking now, provided they are still alive. The New York papers, those wet publications so despised by the Anti-Saloon League, promptly embraced Norris's report as evidence of a government policy gone haywire. Prohibition in this area is a complete failure, the Herald Tribune's editorial page declared. Enforcement a travesty, the public a victim of poisonous liquor. Columnist Haywood Brown wrote in the New York World, The 18th is the only amendment which carries the death penalty. The St. Paul Pioneer Press called the government an accessory to murder when it uses deadly denaturants. And the Chicago Tribune put it like this, Normally, no American government would engage in such business. It would not and does not set a trap gun loaded with nails to catch a counterfeiter. It would not put rat poison on a cheese sandwich even to catch a mail robber. It would not poison postage stamps to get a citizen known to be misusing the mails. It is only in the curious fanaticism of prohibition that any means, however barbarous, are considered justified. And I have to say that I agree with the Chicago Tribune. It's one thing to say, hey, this activity is dangerous, so you shouldn't do it. But it's an entirely different thing when you enact policies to make it more dangerous and more deadly. That's not morally justifiable. And the prohibitionists were caught up in a moral panic that blinded them to the fact that they would never engage in similar behavior on other issues. They were obsessed with this issue, and it distorted their moral judgment. How many people died as a result of the U.S. government's intentional poisoning of the alcohol supply? It's hard to say for sure, but a conservative estimate is that at least 10,000 U.S. citizens died as a result of the policy, with 
other estimates going as high as 50,000 citizens, though that's just the deaths. It doesn't include all the people who were horribly injured by the policy, such as people who went permanently blind or who had their health permanently ruined or who suffered horrible effects in the short term but managed to recover somehow. So the U.S. government really had its citizens' backs. Okay, where do we go from here? We've now set the stage for our main mystery by giving you a look at the historical period in which it occurs, and all the background on prohibition and denatured alcohol will be directly relevant to our story. So, having looked at prohibition on the large scale, it's now time to get much more intimate and zoom in on one particular speakeasy in New York City. And before we do that, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including. Father Matthew N, Militant Millennial, Rachel S, Dustin L, and Patrick L. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Jimmy, you said we'd be looking at one particular speakeasy in New York. What was its name? Well, that's the thing. As far as I can tell, it really didn't have an official name. Some speakeasies, like the famous Cotton Club in Harlem, did have names. But this place was a tiny hole in the wall that operated off the books and kept a low profile. Deborah Bloom describes it. On 3rd Avenue in the Bronx, tucked between a small awning shop and a wedge of brick wall plastered with movie posters advertising the nearby Fenway Theater, Buster Crab in Tarzan the Fearless, Constance Bennett in Bed of Roses, was a dusty little store that never seemed open for business. But if you lived in the neighborhood, you knew that the door was unlocked at night and that behind a screen of dirty stacked boxes was a bare-bones little speakeasy, a sofa, four tables, a plywood bar along the back wall, a fair supply of whiskey, and a bartender who slept on the sofa after the bar closed. And it was a tiny place. In his book On the House, Simon Reed states, The place was not very large. From the point where one entered through the fake facade of the storefront to the back wall of the speakeasy, the distance was only 35 feet. The width of the room was a mere 12 feet, the same length as the bar. So it was a little tiny place, just 12 feet wide and 35 feet long, and it didn't seem to have a name. But it was owned by a man named Tony Marino, and so I've seen it referred to as Marino's Place or just Marino's, and He's one of the principal figures in today's mystery. Who was Tony Marino? What should we know about him? Well, in 1932, when our story begins, he was 27 years old. He had a wife and a baby and a violent streak. Simon Reed states, Marino described himself as having quite a nasty temper and was prone to violent tantrums, during which he smashed furniture. According to his wife, Eleanor, whom he married on August 13, 1928, Marino 
once put the stove into the hall and proceeded to smash the furniture with an axe and then ran into the street with the axe in his hand. On numerous occasions, he became so violent that it was with difficulty that we were able to restrain him. On several occasions, he threatened to turn the gas on in our room and kill the baby and myself. He attributed such behavior to a childhood accident. As a boy, Marino lived with his family at 186 Lincoln Ave. When he was 12, he fell down four flights of stairs at the residence. The fall left him concussed and with a permanent scar on his left temple. It was not long after he recovered from his wounds that his family alleged he began acting queer. He made weird noises and stayed out all night. He cut classes and randomly slugged people. Marino was expelled from school in the sixth grade, so he didn't complete his education. And in the 1920s, after Prohibition started, he started running the speakeasy, though it was not very successful. Business was quite slow. Many of his customers didn't pay their tabs, and he had serious money problems. If we need to know about Marino for today's story, who else do we need to know about? Essentially, we need to meet the regulars at Marino's Speakeasy, and the first one was the sometimes bartender. His name was Joseph Murphy, but people called him Red. I assume that he had red hair. And he also has a strange story. He was actually born in 1906 under the name Archie Mott, and I'm not sure how he became known as Joseph Murphy, but he had a really rough upbringing. He was bounced from one foster home to another, and when none of his foster parents could control him, he was shipped off to a boys' school. But he was too disruptive there, and he ended up spending 10 years as a patient in the Manfield State Training School and Hospital. In 1924, he was evaluated by a hospital psychiatrist, and he was assessed as having a mental age of nine years and six months, despite the fact he was 18 years old at this point. He also was assessed as having an IQ of 56, which is considered extremely low. A normal IQ is 100. And his IQ of 56 put him in the lowest 1% of the population. By 1932, Red was unemployed and homeless, but he was a regular at Marino's. In fact, he drank a lot. And Marino let him serve as bartender, for which he was sometimes paid a dollar a day, which would be $22 today after all the inflation the government has caused. And Marino would let him sleep in the bar overnight. What about people who didn't work at the bar? Are there notable customers we should know about? Several. One of them was a man named Frank Pasqua. He was a local undertaker. In fact, he had quit school to go into the family business of undertaking, which often runs in families, because you, if you don't grow up in such a family, you usually don't say to yourself, you know what I'd like to do when I grow up? Embalm and bury people. But despite the fact that he hadn't finished his education, he was quite a bit more intelligent than most of the patrons at Marino's. He also had a wife and a newborn son, and as a functional, successful businessman, he was quite respectable. Another patron was a gentleman named Tough Tony Bastone. He was 43 years old, and he was a husband and father of five. And he was a Bronx criminal who was involved in a counterfeiting scheme. He regularly carried a gun and enjoyed loudly boasting about how he beat people up. One of Tough Tony's buddies was a man named Joseph Malione. Uh, he also was involved in the counterfeiting scheme, and he was the father of four children. Then there was 
a regular named Daniel Kreisberg. Uh, he was a 29-year-old greengrocer, meaning he sold fruits and vegetables, though business was bad at his vegetable stand because the Great Depression was underway. He had a wife and three small children at home, and unlike the most of the gang at this point, who tended to be Irish or Italian Catholics, Kreisberg happened to be Jewish. There are also a few others who will enter our story later, but these are the principal ones that we should be aware of. Then who was Michael Malloy, the man today's episode is named after, and why is he called Iron Mike? The central figure in our story today was an Irishman, and not much is known about his background. In fact, we don't appear to have any photographs of him, so the episode artwork for today is only impressionistic. It's not an actual picture of Iron Mike. But he apparently was born in County Donegal in Northern Ireland, and after coming to this country, he was alone. He had no known family in the United States. It was estimated that he was around 60 years old, which made him much older than the other people in our story. They were all in their 20s. Um, we'll find out how he got the nickname Iron Mike, but by this point in his life, he had definitely fallen on hard times. Simon Reed describes Mike this way. A staggering drunk, his only acquaintances were those he nudged elbows with at the bar. Malloy, wrote the Daily Mirror, was just one of many pieces of flotsam and jetsam in the swift current of underworld speakeasy life. Those no longer responsible derelicts who stumble through the last days of their lives in a continual haze of bowery smoke. And smoke isn't what you'd think. Instead, it was a kind of drink. Smoke was a slang term that referred to the methyl or wood alcohol that people took to drinking during Prohibition. He worked numerous slum jobs, sweeping alleyways and collecting garbage. During a certain high point, he was employed as a stationary fireman. But when that job fell through, sometime in mid-1932, he returned to street cleaning. He also sometimes worked for Frank Pasqua, the undertaker who was a regular at Marino's. Occasionally, he did work for Pasqua's burial service at 246 East 116th Street in Harlem. On days when he wasn't stupefied with drink, he swept the place out and polished the coffins. Sometimes he would help make a corpse look dapper for its open casket send-off. In exchange for his sporadic labor, Malloy received a few scant dollars and was allowed to sometimes sleep in the mortuary at night. But Mike only worked at Pasqua's some of the time, and when he didn't, he was homeless. He also was a regular at Marino's. He was, to begin with, a good-paying customer, welcomed by Marino whenever he sidled up to the bar. Such open-armed hospitality only encouraged Malloy to partake of the bottle with increasing regularity. Soon he was spending more time in Marino's than he was at the occasional odd job that paid his way. His tab began to mount. The charming anecdotes he imparted between swigs of drink were not as charming as hard cash. When Marino made this clear, Malloy hit the streets with his broom. His tab, however, continued to stretch beyond his meager financial means and eventually led to a grim inevitability. It was one evening in November 1931 that Marino broke the hard news to Malloy. His line of credit had been canceled. Malloy was shattered. His pleading eyes and promise of future payments carried no weight. Denied his panacea and feeling dejected, he staggered out into the cold night of a depression winter. But he returned the following evening and began his nightly ritual of appealing to the charitable nature of Marino's few other customers to buy him drinks. Malloy deemed it a humanitarian effort. Marino simply considered it begging. But despite the desperate circumstances in which Mike was living, he was about to do something that would make him 
the stuff of legend, providing him with a legacy that is still remembered today and that would earn him the nickname Iron Mike. So what happened? What made Mike a legendary figure? Well, this was 1932 and the Great Depression was on. Uh, People were out of work, and in the United States, 25%, a quarter of all men, didn't have a job. As a result, business at Marino's tiny hole-in-the-wall speakeasy was terrible. According to Reed, It all began with a simple complaint. Business, Marino said, twirling the drink in his glass, is bad. He was sitting at a table with Pasqua in the cramped proprietor's room in the back of the speakeasy. Murphy and Malloy were behind the bar, stealing swigs from a bottle. Malloy, taking advantage of Marino's loose criteria for employment, was now occasionally working as a bartender to cover his drinking expenses. Sometimes he slept in the speakeasy overnight, taking a spot on the floor near Murphy's sofa. Pasqua eyed Malloy's teetering figure, the head back, a bottle jutting upward from the mouth. Surely the man was no more than a few sips from the grave. Death was never far removed from Pasqua's thinking. It was part of his job. But at that moment, something in the undertaker clicked. Spurred by this random and seemingly innocent thought, an old idea resurfaced, aglow with new vitality. Why don't you take out insurance on Malloy, Pasqua asked. I can take care of the rest. There followed a moment of contemplative silence. It occurred to Marino that Malloy did indeed present an ideal opportunity for financial betterment. He was a raging drunk. He had no friends and no family. Should some unfortunate mishap relieve Malloy of his mortal obligation, there would be no one to miss him. Marino assumed that years of hard living had left Malloy battered and feeble. It would take little to put him in the ground, and the money would certainly be nice. He looked at Kreisberg, who stared back at him with hopeful expectation. Apparently, the grocery business was not what it once was. Now, under Kreisberg's expectant stare, it took Marino little time to convince himself that the plan was a good one. Looking at Pasqua, Marino said, sure. Marino, Pasqua, and Kreisberg uh, thus became the first three members of what would later be called the Murder Trust. At Pasqua's suggestion, they would take out life insurance on Mike Malloy, murder him, collect the insurance money, and split it among themselves. How did they go about their plan? The first step was to take out insurance on Mike, and they needed Mike's consent for that. So on July 29, 1932, Pasqua drove to the speakeasy. As Reed reports, Hey Mike, Pasqua said, what do you say we go get you some insurance? Not being of obstinate mind, Malloy readily agreed to the plan. Sure, he said, whatever you fellows say. Mike thus agreed to the idea of insurance being taken out on him without asking any questions about why his friends would want to do this. He was an unusually innocent, trusting soul. Pasqua then drove Mike back to his funeral home, where he'd arranged to meet with a representative of the Prudential Life Insurance Company named Joseph Frumento. Frumento was a new insurance salesman. He had only been working for Prudential for less than a year, so he wasn't very experienced. Are you the man to be insured, Frumento asked Malloy. Malloy, in a rare moment of sobriety, answered in the affirmative. What type of policy do you desire, Frumento asked, opening his briefcase to retrieve a bundle of papers. Well, said Malloy, I'll leave that up to Mr. Pasqua. Negotiations then began, and Pasqua arranged for policy that could be paid by the month, 
the premium was $8.08 per month, or $30 today. There were some personal details that needed to be gathered. Uh, Mike told Frumento that he was born in Ireland on June 5th, 1885, which would mean he was 47 years old rather than the 60 he was estimated to be. Um, He listed the speakeasy as his place of residence. One of the key details that needed to be worked out was who the beneficiary in the event of his untimely death would be. Asked about his family, Malloy told Fermento he hadn't any friend or relative except Frank Pasqua. Then who do you want to name as a beneficiary, Fermento asked. Well, the only friend I have here who's been doing good to me is Frank Pasqua, Malloy said. He gave me a job and feeds me. Pasqua was thus designated as Mike's beneficiary, and it was agreed that Pasqua would pay the premiums. He paid the first premium in advance on the spot, and Mike signed his name on the form. This whole procedure looks really shady. One guy pays the premiums on another guy to whom he's not related. He pays month to month, and he's also the beneficiary of the policy. That reeks of insurance fraud. Don't insurance companies have review processes to stop obviously fraudulent transactions from occurring? They do. Uh, Before a policy can be finalized, it has to be reviewed. And the new policy on Mike was reviewed by an assistant superintendent named Charles Minervini. He found the application suspicious, and so he paid several calls at Pasqua's burial service to interview Mike, but Mike was never there. So he arranged to have Mike come into his office on Saturday, August 6th, for an interview, and Pasqua came with him. Pasqua explained that he wanted to take out the policy on Mike because Mike worked for him and had no friends or family to pay for his funeral if he died. So Pasqua wanted the policy so that he could pay for Mike's funeral in the event of an unexpected death. Pasqua also said that Mike lived at the funeral parlor, but Superintendent Minervini noticed that Mike had said his place of residence was the address of the speakeasy. He indicated that he'd reviewed the policy, but... On August 24th, the application for Prudential Policy Number 64827 was turned down. The word rejected was stamped across its face. Fermento returned to Pasqua's place of business and refunded him the $8.08 advance. This was a setback to the murder trust's plans, so they decided to try getting insurance again with another company. It would be the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, and Pasqua decided to improve the details of Mike's life story to make him a better candidate to be insured. He told the Metropolitan agent, Joseph Pareka, that Mike was the night watchman at the funeral home. On Monday, September 12th, he and Pareka drove to the speakeasy for an interview with Mike. Agent Pareka sold him a policy that would pay out $3,000 and that would have premiums of $8.10 per month, and Metropolitan rejected the policy just like Prudential had. At this point, Pasqua must have realized that getting insurance for a person he wasn't related to was going to be a problem. Also, his name and Mike's name were now known to the local insurance companies. Did he modify the plan to take account of these facts? He did, and the idea was to pull Red Murphy, the bartender, into the plan. He would pretend to be Mike's brother, getting around the issue of insuring an unrelated person, and they would use fake names, getting around the fact that Pasqua's and Mike's names were now known to the companies. 
For insurance purposes, Mike Malloy would now be known as Nicholas Mellory, and Joseph Red Murphy would now be Joseph Mellory. Pasqua called the Metropolitan Agent Pereka back and arranged a meeting. He said that Nicholas Mellory lived with him and his wife at their residence, and he wanted to arrange insurance for his friend. On Wednesday, November 16th, Pareka met with Pasqua to fill out the proper forms. The man to be insured was not there, and it was against metropolitan policy to submit a policy based on information provided by someone else. But it was the Great Depression, and Pareka wanted to make a sale. So he filled out the paperwork based on what Pasqua told him without seeing Mallory. Pasqua said that Mallory was born in America to Irish parents, that he lived in Pasqua's house, that he was around 40 years old and had no significant health problems, and that he worked at night as a florist. Being a night florist, if there is such a thing, was the explanation for why Pareka couldn't be on hand for the meeting because he worked nights and slept during the day. Pasqua had also arranged for a florist he did funeral business with to say that Mellory worked for him if anybody ever asked. The policy was for $800, and it had a monthly premium of $5.02. Better yet, the policy included a double indemnity provision, meaning that if Mike died an accidental death, it would pay out $1,600, or $17,000 today and it was approved by Metropolitan on December 1st. So, now that they had Mike insured, were they ready to murder him? Not just yet, because Marino, the speakeasy owner, had gotten to thinking. Now that they had five men involved in the plot against Mike, if they all took an equal share of the proceeds, they'd each get only around $300 or $6,500 today, and that didn't seem like a lot of money for all the risk they were undertaking, so Marino wanted to find a way to make more. Pasqua thus contacted Agent Pareka again and asked him about taking out more policies. The explanation he gave was that if Nicholas Mellory should ever marry, the current $800 policy wouldn't do a lot for his future wife and children. Agent Pareka recommended a prudential salesman named Frederick Freyson whom Pasqua met with on Monday, December 19th. Pasqua even arranged for someone to show up at the meeting and pretend to be Nicholas, Nicholas Mallory. It wasn't Mike, and exactly who it was is one of the enduring mysteries of this case. In filling out the paperwork, they also changed Mallory's birthday again, making him four years younger than what they told Metropolitan. And the imposter Nicholas Mellory signed the paperwork with a notably different signature than the one on the Metropolitan form. But they got two policies, each of which would pay out $494 for a total of $988, or almost $2,000 with double indemnity. These had weekly premiums of $0.65 cents each. Between these two policies, the original $800 one for Metropolitan and double indemnity, the murder trust stood to make $3,600, or $77,000 today, which would give the five members of the murder trust a much better split each. Let's take a moment and talk about double indemnity. What is it? Double indemnity is a concept in the insurance industry 
where they pay out twice what they normally would pay under certain conditions. Basically, if a person dies as the result of an accident, you get paid twice. Only about 5% of deaths are the result of accidents, so the odds of having to pay twice aren't very high, and insurance companies often offer double indemnity policies as a way of making the policy seem more valuable without taking on much additional financial risk to themselves. What counts as an accident? Any number of things. Uh, Getting hit by an automobile, getting struck by lightning, being murdered, all those count as accidents. Unless you deliberately committed suicide, such as by jumping in front of an automobile, or unless the people who murdered you were in collusion with the beneficiary of the policy. So suicides and murder plots are right out. Also out are natural causes, since those aren't accidents. If the policyholder dies through his own gross negligence, it isn't an accident. Like if you get drunk and decide to play in traffic, that's gross negligence, and your beneficiaries don't get paid double due to your own recklessness. But with the Metropolitan and Prudential policies in hand, the conspirators were now ready to proceed with stage two of their plan and murder Mike. How did they go about that? Mike was a raging alcoholic, and he'd been one for years. He was showing the physical effects of years of alcohol abuse, and the murder trust figured he was in frail health. He would likely drink as much alcohol as you gave him, and that was good for the conspirators, because drinking too much alcohol will kill you. You're considered legally drunk when your blood alcohol content reaches 0.08%. You'll start throwing up if it gets to 0.15%. Acute alcohol poisoning sets in at 0.3%. And if your blood alcohol content gets over 0.4%, you will likely go into a coma and die. So the plan was to give Mike unfettered access to alcohol and let him drink himself to death. Hadn't Marino already canceled Mike's line of credit at the speakeasy? How was he going to afford all the drinks he would take? Marino told Mike that competition from other speakeasies was forcing him to change his policies. He had to relax them in order to keep up with other businesses. And because Mike had been such a loyal customer, he was granting him an open-ended tab, which meant that Mike could drink as much as he wanted. Mike didn't inquire too deeply about this change in policy. The prospect of not having to beg other people for drinks and being able to drink as much as he'd like was too enticing. Simon Reed reports, And so it was that Malloy started drinking. He wasted no time in lavishing himself with the liquid riches so generously placed at his disposal. The other members of the gang watched from the periphery, their own bottles in hand, as Malloy unwittingly took the first steps on the path that would lead to his end. But in the dirty yellow light of the speakeasy, as the conspirators sat waiting in the shadows, one gin after the other, Malloy chugged like a champion. No sooner had his empty glass touched the bar than it was filled again to the brim by Marino. Between shots, Malloy expressed to the barkeep his sincere gratitude. He was, the papers later reported, thankful for munificent comrades. Malloy eventually had his fill. He dragged the back of a scruffy sleeve across his mouth and thanked Marino for the outstanding service. Then, with legs that were surprisingly steady, he shuffled out into the merciless embrace of the wintry night. 
The murder trust may have expected that after the marathon drinking session, Mike would have reached the fatal blood alcohol level and die in the night after he left the bar. But he didn't. He came back the next day ready for more drinking. The second day also didn't kill him. And he came back on the third day for more. He came back every day for a week and drank his fill every time. By years of habitual, excessive drinking, Mike's body had adjusted to the effects of alcohol, and he simply wasn't drinking himself to death, even though he was consuming quantities of alcohol and Marino's inventory that would kill a normal person. The members of the murder trust were stunned at what Mike was able to put away, and their attempt to let him drink himself to death had failed. What did they decide to do now? The same thing that the U.S. government decided to do to the American public in 1926, increase the deadliness of what he was drinking by poisoning it. Red Murphy, the bartender, may have had an IQ of 56, but he suggested replacing the ethanol that Mike was drinking with methanol. Remember, ethanol is edible, methanol is murder. So, told you that was foreshadowing. Wouldn't Mike notice if they suddenly switched the alcohol he'd been drinking from ethanol to methanol? I mean, methanol has a very different smell and an even worse flavor. He would, and so the plan was to wean him onto methanol in stages. Red Murphy went to a paint store to get the wood alcohol for just 10 cents a can. Then he would begin by giving Mike ordinary grain alcohol drinks. But once Mike started to get tipsy and lose his sense of taste, Red would begin adding methanol to the drinks. Incidentally, in the slang of the day, methanol or wood alcohol was known as smoke. So when you read accounts of this period, you have to be attentive to whether they're talking about tobacco smoke or wood alcohol when you hear about smoke or smoky dives like Marino's speakeasy. What happened when they started giving Mike smoke to drink? According to Simon Reed, Once convinced that Malloy was feeling good, Murphy began tainting the shots with smoke. Malloy downed them with unabated enthusiasm. His expression remained neutral. The other saw nothing in his body language that betrayed any sense that something was wrong. In fact, Malloy asked for more. He downed several poison shots that evening, expressing his pleasure with each, much to the startled amazement of the others. He continued to drink, eventually reaching quite an advanced state of intoxication. This, however, did nothing to impede his consumption. According to the Daily News, he merely slept it off and appeared at the speakeasy the next day, none the worse for this exposure. The members of the murder trust were astonished, and they decided that they needed to raise the toxicity of the drinks. So instead of merely adding smoke to grain alcohol, they started giving Mike shots of pure smoke. But Mike remained unfazed. Instead of going blind or going into a coma and dying, he just kept chugging the stuff. So the greengrocer, Daniel Kreisberg, thought of a way to get Mike to drink even more of the stuff quickly, preventing his body from breaking it down over time. The gang was becoming increasingly dismayed by his immunity. In a vain attempt to speed things along, 
Kreisberg bellied up to the bar one particular evening and invited Malloy to partake in a duel. Let's see how much liquor we can drink, he said, presenting Malloy with a challenge no serious drinker could turn his back on. Malloy eagerly accepted. The rules were thus. Murphy would pour Malloy drinks from one bottle and pour Kreisberg's drinks from another. I drank whiskey, Kreisberg said. Malloy drank wood alcohol, but he didn't die. Again, Malloy was defying the dictums of medical science and the bounds of human endurance. On some nights, Kreisberg, a gaunt-looking individual described as a sallow, thin, dark-haired man with a long face and sloping forehead, would arrive at the speakeasy and find the place stinking of wood alcohol. Wafting out from behind the bar and carried on Malloy's breath, the odor permeated every corner of the establishment. Not once did Malloy portray any physical symptoms other than those of typical inebriation that might indicate something was taking an ill hold on him. Not merely was he drinking wood alcohol, he thrived on it. Kreisberg said that on one evening he watched Malloy consume a quart and a half of the deadly stuff. And a quart and a half of methyl alcohol should be fatal. Consuming just seven and a half grams of methanol should cause blindness in a human, and 56 grams of smoke will kill the average person. The upper limit a human can survive is thought to be 474 grams, which works out to 21 fluid ounces. But the quart and a half that Mike drank would be 48 ounces, more, the, more than double the maximum fatal amount. Mike was a biological monster, able to consume far more of the poison than anyone had imagined. But there was a moment of hope for the murder trust. No one knows for sure how much Malloy drank that late December evening, but it seemed that he had finally consumed more than his battered body could handle. He swayed on his feet, his speech became a jumbled slur of incomprehensible nonsense. Struggling yet determined, he brought another glass up to his lips and slurped the contents down. It's always the final drink that pushes one over the edge. He hit the floor at a crumbled heap. He lay there motionless before a small but startled audience. They got up from their chairs and surrounded him in an air of anticipation. Red Murphy felt an overwhelming sense of accomplishment at being the man to lay Malloy flat. This was the moment they had all envisioned, for as it was later reported, the scheme had begun to cost them money. Insurance premiums were being paid and money had been fronted. Buying the liquor and poison and the amounts necessary to unravel Malloy had not been cheap. Alas, it now seemed it had not been for naught. Assuming his duties as undertaker, Pasqua knelt beside the body and performed a brief examination. He checked for a pulse and heartbeat and placed his ear to Malloy's mouth to see if the man was still breathing. Signs of life were weak and the breathing was slow and labored. Pasqua assured the others that it was only a matter of time before Malloy snuffed it. The gang left Malloy on the floor and waited for the inevitable. The perpetrators receded to the shadows and watched Malloy's chest rise in jerky intervals beneath his crumpled shirt. The minutes ticked by and propelled them deeper into the still of that tense night. Then something happened. Malloy's breathing lost its arrhythmic quality and a sound not unfamiliar escaped the unconscious man. Michael Malloy was snoring. The guy was merely sleeping it off. The murder trust's second plan for killing Mike, letting him drink himself to death with smoke, had failed. I also should point out that the trust was making a crucial mistake in their plans if they wanted to collect double indemnity on the policies, because you don't get paid double indemnity 
if the policyholder dies through gross negligence and drinking yourself to death, whether with ethanol or methanol, though it was common during prohibition, would count as gross negligence. So even if the plan had worked, they would have gotten only half the money they were hoping for. But they hadn't been thinking through the plan properly. Did they decide to give up at this point, cut their losses, cancel the insurance policies, and move on? No, they just came up with a new plan. This time, it was Pasqua, the undertaker, who proposed it. With the murder trust getting increasingly anxious and frustrated, they decided to add a new weapon to the arsenal they were using against Mike. Food. The speakeasy had a lunch tray with things like sardines and oysters on it, and Mike was known for chowing down on the sardines while drinking. So for their third plan... Having taken note of Malloy's love of sardines and oysters, Pasqua said it was time to let loose with a full frontal gastrointestinal assault. There would be no more messing around. This was the real deal. Pasqua's plan called for dropping oysters in a jar of denatured alcohol and after letting them soak for a while, serving them to Malloy. Pasqua was certain that would do the trick because alcohol taken during a meal of oysters will almost invariably cause acute indigestion for the oysters tend to remain preserved. Pasqua knew from professional experience that such a culinary concoction could prove fatal. Pasqua had previously undertaken a man who had died from eating oysters preserved in methanol along with tainted whiskey. They caused a gastrointestinal infection and the man went into shock, killing him. After eating such a meal, Mike should be dead within two days. So they put a bunch of oysters in smoke and soaked them for several days. Once Malloy had slipped comfortably into his early evening buzz, Marino placed the oysters in front of him. Malloy was again taken aback by this display of seemingly boundless generosity. He plucked the oysters from the plate one by one and thoroughly masticated each mouthful. A meal such as this was not one to be rushed. Indeed, each morsel, its taste and texture, was worthy of his fullest attention. As Malloy ate, Marino and Pasqua watched from the sidelines with morbid anticipation. Pasqua was sure the alcohol would act on the oysters like formaldehyde on a corpse. It would preserve them and render them impregnable to the ravages of Malloy's stomach acids as they passed through his digestive tract. They would nestle like a lead weight in his gut and cause all sorts of grotesque problems. Mike finished the meal of oysters with no apparent ill effects and asked for another drink. He continued to get drunk and left for the evening. When he staggered from the speakeasy later that night, he left behind him a raging torrent of confusion and frustration. When he returned the following day in high spirits and unblemished health, the group descended into quiet turmoil. Never felt better in all my life, Malloy said when asked by a curious Marino how he was feeling. How was any of this possible? Surely Malloy was not blessed with the powers of immortality. The gang decided it was time to meet again and conferred later that evening. In their frantic discussion, the members breached new lows of depravity, for they were not burdened by any guiding moral conscience. It had reached the point where nothing was beyond consideration. Desperation had evolved into obsession. Killing Malloy had become a matter of principle, though profit still remained the underlying motivator. So, plan number three also had failed. What did they decide after their urgent meeting? They decided to try plan number four. It was Red Murphy, described by one newspaper scribe as shifty-eyed and nervous, who proposed the winning plan. 
Try poisonous sardines with tin garnishings. Apparently, the barman was convinced that tainted seafood was still the way to go. But raw shellfish soaked in denatured alcohol was one thing. Digesting jagged shards of shrapnel was something else entirely. The gang agreed and decided to move forward with Murphy's recommendation. Red thus began making preparations for giving Mike an extra special sandwich. It was a ritual duly noted by Murphy, who purchased a can of sardines to make a special dish just for Malloy. The can was opened and placed on a shelf out of sight, allowing the sardines to sour. Murphy let them rot for several days, deciding they were fit for serving only after he found himself repulsed by the smell. Before Malloy came in one evening, Murphy smeared the contaminated fish on a piece of bread. To the slimy spread, he added not salt and pepper or a dash of mustard, but numerous metal slivers. Via the services of a local machine shop, Murphy had reduced the can to nothing more than tin shavings. Bits of broken glass were then carefully placed amid the mush, along with some carpet tacks. Another slice of bread was lovingly placed on top. It was expected that the metal slivers, broken glass, and carpet tacks would tear up Mike's insides, and the rotten fish would provide food poisoning, with the microorganisms going into all the tears that the jagged debris had made and causing an internal infection that would be difficult or impossible to cure in 1932 because antibiotics weren't in common use yet. The British scientist Alexander Fleming had only discovered penicillin four years earlier, in 1928, in England, and it wasn't commonly on the market yet, certainly not in America. So Mike would be doomed once he ate the sandwich. When he went to the bar, Red Murphy poured him a drink and then offered him the sandwich. Malloy accepted and ravenously sunk his teeth into the fishy treat. Murphy watched and waited any minute now it would happen. The first sharp shards would tear through Malloy's internal workings, piercing and shredding pipes and tissue as they made the torturous descent to his gut. But Malloy chomped, chewed, and swallowed that first mouthful without so much as a grimace. Satisfied, he did it again, and continued to do so until the sandwich was gone. Murphy was not a man prone to deep thought or inquisitive spirit, but even he was taken aback by Malloy's durability. Was it possible to chew a mouthful of broken glass, carpet tacks, and razor-like splinters of tin and not feel anything? Was Malloy immune to pain? Was his body resistant to such injuries? None of them should have been surprised, for Malloy had thus far proven himself to be a biological powerhouse. Mike ate the sandwich and liked it. He asked for another sandwich and proceeded to get drunk as usual. He never seemed to experience any of the negative consequences that the murder trust expected, even in the ensuing days. Plan number four had failed. Okay, what did they do for plan number five? One of the members of the murder trust, uh, Tough Tony Bastoni, believed in the direct approach, and he wanted to shoot Mike dead. Plan five was to purchase a machine gun, lead Mike into a trap, and then shoot him dead. They thus sought to get a 1930s-style Thompson submachine gun, or Tommy gun, and Marino knew where he could get one. But with the Great Depression on, the murder trust was strapped for cash, and they didn't have the money they needed to purchase the machine gun. So Plan 5 also failed. And then one day in, in January 1933, Mike failed to appear at the speakeasy. 
His absence at the bar was glaring and remained so over the next several days. Where was he? Had the wood alcohol finally done its thing? Had he suffered a delayed reaction to the tainted sardines and poisoned oysters? Was it possible that after all their efforts, their conniving and scheming, all the setbacks and frustrations, the gang had finally killed Iron Man Malloy? Of course not. He was back in the speakeasy less than a week later, his return promptly bringing an end to the jovial speculation. As he pulled up a stool at the bar, he told Marina where he had been. He went away to the Fordham Hospital, Marina said. It turned out that Mike had developed an oozing sore on one of his legs and he'd been in the hospital for treatment. How he paid for it, I don't know, but he was doing great. What did the trust do for plan number six? They decided to draw on previous experience, and this takes us on a detour back in time. You'll recall that Tony Marino, the owner of the speakeasy, had a wife, a family, and an anger management problem. Uh, He would do things like smash up furniture and threaten to kill his wife and baby. Well, that made his marriage rocky, and for a time, he and his wife were separated. During this period, Marino took up with a 27-year-old woman named Mabel Carlson. This was in early 1932. And on the morning of March 17, 1932, the police were called to Marino's house. Mabel Carlson was lying dead in the bed. An autopsy was performed, and the doctor concluded that she died of bronchial pneumonia and had acute chronic alcoholism. How did Marino explain what happened to authorities? He said that she was his housekeeper and that she had been drinking heavily for the previous three weeks and refused to go see a doctor. On the night of March 16th, he had come home and seen her lying on her bed. Uh, He assumed that she was asleep, but in the morning, he discovered that she was dead. So the authorities concluded that there were no suspicious circumstances. Marino then collected the $2,000 life insurance policy he had taken out on Maybell from Prudential, and that money helped him through part of 1932 until it ran out and his attention turned to Mike later that summer. In hindsight, after today's mystery was revealed, did the authorities determine that anything sinister had happened to Maybell? Yes, the authorities reviewed the evidence and the following scenario emerged. The night she died had been particularly brisk for spring. There was a hard edge to the air that brought with it the promise of a morning frost, but there was warmth to be found in a bottle. Marino plied Mabel with whiskey until she was babbling incoherently. Then he gave her some more, pouring drinks down her throat until she was properly pickled. It was Dr. Smith's later assessment that Mabel was probably force-fed the alcohol, or she would have been too weak from illness to serve herself. Satisfied that Mabel was severely sauced, Marino helped her to bed. But before doing so, he moved the bed under an open window and poured ice water over the sheets and mattress. He then stripped her naked and wrapped her in the sodden bedclothes. It did the trick. By the way, I want to comment on the remark that even though the night was cold, there was warmth to be found in a bottle. That's a very dangerous misimpression that people have. It's based on the fact that alcohol is a vasodilator. It makes your blood vessels expand, particularly the capillaries in your skin. So what happens when you drink in the cold is it draws blood to your skin, and that gives you a feeling of warmth. The problem is that it's drawing blood away from the core of your body. 
By being drawn to the skin, the blood will radiate away more of your body's internal heat, and it will actually increase the effects of hypothermia. As a result, if you're ever in a desperately cold situation, do not try to get warm by drinking alcohol. It will actually cause you to die of the cold quicker. The feeling of warmth is an illusion that will lead to a speedier death. In any event, by causing the death of Mabel Carlson, Marino apparently had the benefit of previous experience with this kind of thing. And in January 1933, he decided to do the same thing to Mike that he had done to Mabel Carlson. Marino thus proposed plan number six to the undertaker, Pasqua. They would get Mike drunk on methanol, then take him out to a nearby park called Cretona Park, and since it was January in New York, the park was covered in snow. They would stretch Mike out on a bench, open his shirt, pour a bucket of water over him, and let him freeze to death, or at least get pneumonia so that he'd die in a few days. So that's exactly what they did. Once Mike was drunk, Pas Marino and Pasqua loaded him into a car, took him to the park, opened his shirt, poured a bucket of water over him, and left him to freeze. However, when Marino arrived at his speakeasy the following day to open it up, there was a surprise waiting for him. Lying on the floor in the middle of the basement was Malloy's ragged and unconscious form. Mike had apparently woken up before his body temperature got too low. He staggered back to the speakeasy. Red Murphy, who would have been drunk himself, let him back in. And Mike warmed himself back up by sleeping the rest of the evening in the basement next to the gas stove. And because of the alcohol, Mike apparently had no clear memories of what had happened to him, so he didn't suspect what had been done to him, and he never developed pneumonia. Plan six had failed. Was there a plan seven? Oh, yes. Uh, the murder trust was now obsessed with finding a way to kill the unkillable Mike Malloy and collect the insurance money they had on him. Uh, he didn't yet have the nickname Iron Mike, but having survived so many murder attempts, he would be given that nickname in the future, as well as other nicknames like Mike the Durable, the Juggernaut, and the Irish Rasputin. And yes, we will be talking about the Russian mystic Rasputin in a future episode and the attempts that were made on his life. The Murder Trust's new plan, again, involved a weapon. Having failed to obtain a machine gun, they decided to use a more accessible weapon, an automobile. In fact, there's actually a Larry Niven story about, it's called The Deadlier Weapon, um, and it's about a guy who's driving his car, he picks up a hitchhiker, the hitchhiker tries to threaten him with a gun, but he's in a car, he's driving the car, and the car is the deadlier weapon, so he gets the better of the hijacker. In any event, the murder trust brought a new member into the plot at this point, a taxi driver named Harry Green, who was called Hershey by his friends. I don't know for sure, but I assume that the nickname was after the popular chocolate candy known as a Hershey bar, which had begun to be marketed in 1900, 33 years earlier. Hershey was an excellent choice for their plan because he apparently was a psychopath. 
he would drive around in his cab, fantasizing about killing his customers. He was really looking forward to taking human life someday. He later said he would have been willing to kill Mike for nothing, but they offered him a cut of the insurance money, so he was on board. Plan 7 was that they would get Mike drunk, load him into Hershey's cab, take him to a deserted street in the dead of night, and run him over, repeatedly if necessary. So that's what they did on the night of Monday, January 30th, 1933. After getting Mike drunk, they took him to what seemed to be a neighborhood where no one was awake. Tough Tony Bastoni and Red Murphy held Mike between them in front of the cab, ready to leap out of the way. And... The revving of the taxi's engine signaled Malloy's imminent end. Bastone, Murphy, and Malloy were small, hard-to-see figures on the windshield. Hershey Green gunned the motor some more and released the brake. The reverberation of the engine shook the taxi as the wheels spun momentarily, searching for something to grip on the icy street. The car jumped forward with a powerful lurch. With his foot heavy on the accelerator, Green catapulted the car down the center of the roadway. In the street, Murphy and Bastone held Malloy by his outstretched arms. Their legs were bent and their bodies wound tight as they prepared to jump clear at the last possible moment. The car's headlights grew larger and the engine louder, like the roar of some charging beast. In the car, the men braced themselves for the awful impact, and co-conspirator Joseph Malioni noticed something that made him yell at Green to stop the cab. Just then, a woman happened to light a light in a window, and they changed their minds, Malioni said. The car screeched to a violent halt. The German leader Otto von Bismarck is famous for having said that God has a special providence for fools, drunkards, and the United States of America. Iron Mike Malloy was definitely a drunkard. He was arguably a fool for not realizing that his friends were repeatedly trying to kill him. And he had made the United States his adopted homeland. And God was definitely looking out for him. At the last moment, one of the co-conspirators noticed that a woman turned on a light in a window and could be watching them. So they aborted the fatal cab run. Did they abort Plan 7 itself? No, they took Mike to an even more deserted road. Once again, Tough Tony and Red the bartender held Mike in the middle of the road. Hershey revved up his cab and barreled towards them, but he missed. When Tough Tony and Red leaped out of the way, the still groggy Mike leaped with them, and Hershey almost hit Tough Tony and Red instead. The second attempt of Plan 7 failed. God still seemed to be looking out for Iron Mike Malloy. But as they say, the third time's the charm. So the incompetent killers mustered their efforts for a third attempt with the cab. This time, Mike again leaped out of the way when Tough Tony and Red did. So they tried a fourth time, concerned that if they hung out here much longer, someone would come along and see what they were doing. Hershey quickly came up with a new plan. I made up a signal with Bastone that I ring the horn twice when I came down the road for him to know it was me and that we wouldn't miss Malloy this time. He agreed, and I drove down to Baychester Avenue and Gun Hill Road again and came up this time and hit Malloy. And afterward, I went up Baychester Avenue another 200 yards, turned around, and came down on the other side. As I was coming back, I seen a car stopped at the side of Malloy's body, but I didn't stop there. I continued down and picked up Murphy and Bastone. 
So after they finally hit Iron Mike on the fourth attempt, another car did drive up and stop by Mike's body, and they had to take off urgently. However, Mike had taken the full force of the impact by the taxi cab at almost 50 miles per hour. His body rolled up over the hood of the cab, up the windshield, and then became airborne before falling back to earth behind the cab. And they were certain he was dead, so they didn't mind having to leave the scene. What did they plan to do next? The overall plan was to move on to stage three of the ski. After news of Mike's death hit the papers, Red Murphy would pretend to be his grieving brother, claim possession of the body, show the death certificate to the insurance companies, and collect the money, which would be double indemnity since getting hit by a cab on an icy road in the dead of night is an accident. But the next day, there was no death notice in the newspapers, not in any of the newspapers, and Mike didn't show up at the bar. This was very confusing. If Mike was dead, why wasn't there a notice in the newspapers? And if he was alive, why hadn't he shown up as usual? The murder trust decided to wait a couple of days and see what happened, but nothing did. So they drove back to the site of the accident to look for Mike's body, thinking he may have been only mostly dead. And there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. So maybe Mike had the strength to crawl under some bushes or something before dying and nobody had found his body. But Iron Mike's body wasn't anywhere to be found. Wouldn't that throw a kink in their plans? Without a body, they couldn't get a death certificate. And Without a death certificate, they couldn't collect the insurance money. Exactly. So they decided to execute what you could call Plan 8. They would scour other low-life speakeasies, find someone who kind of sort of looked like Mike, get him drunk, have Hershey smash him with his cab, put a fake identity card and some coins in his pocket, and let someone else find the body. So on, Jan on February 6th, 1933, they went to Harlem and started looking. Much to their surprise, they found someone who looked almost exactly like Mike, and they laughed at their good fortune. His name was Joseph Patrick Murray. He was 31 years old. He had been born in San Francisco, but had moved with his parents to Ireland as a child. It being the Great Depression, they offered him a job, and he was down and out, so he came with them willingly. First, though, they took him back to the speakeasy for some friendly drinks, and soon he was passed out on the floor. They waited until it was late at night. They put the fake identification card and some pocket change into his pocket, loaded him into Hershey's cab, took him to a street that looked deserted, and ran over him twice to make sure he was dead. And then, because a car was coming once again, they had to leave rather quickly. Was the death of the substitute victim, Joseph Murray, reported the next day in the paper? Surprisingly, no. It turned out that Murray survived being run over twice and was now in the hospital. Further, someone had seen Murray being run over. It wasn't clear if Murray would survive, but they decided that if he did, it wouldn't be safe to try to collect the insurance money since there was a witness. Having now run over two men, they still 
didn't have a body they could use to collect the insurance money. Further, Mike Malloy still hadn't shown up at the speakeasy, and they couldn't imagine that he was still alive and walking about. So they had Red Murphy, the bartender, pretend to be the grieving brother and start calling hospitals and morgues all over New York to see if anyone knew what had happened to his brother, Nicholas Mellory. But nobody did. No one by that name was in a hospital or a morgue. However, life is rife with special moments, episodes in the eternal continuum of time that cannot be truly appreciated unless one experiences them firsthand. There is a charge to the surroundings, a raw emotive power that can only be appreciated and understood if it is felt. Five days after Malloy was hit, such an occurrence took place at Marino Speakeasy. Michael Malloy returned, not from the other side, but from Fordham Hospital. Hobbling through the speakeasy's door, Malloy, a bandaged, limping figure, announced his triumphant return with the following declaration. I sure am dying for a drink. Yes, Iron Mike had once again survived. He once again had been too drunk to remember that his friends had tried to kill him again, and he had now recovered enough to get out of the hospital. The reason Red Murphy hadn't been able to locate him was that he was asking about the fictional Nicholas Mellory, not the actual Michael Malloy. Mike had found the fake ID card with the name Nicholas Mellory in his pocket, but he had no idea how it got there so he was listed in the hospital under his real name. Having failed to kill Iron Mike using eight different plans, some of which were tried and failed repeatedly, did the murder trust at last start thinking about calling off the plot? Actually, yes. Some of them were starting to have second thoughts, and one of them was Red Murphy, the bartender. Simon Reed states, the day Malloy returned, Murphy, even while he poured Malloy poison, clued him in to what was happening. After everything Murphy had done to assist in Malloy's demise, it was a strange time for his conscience to kick in. There was, however, something sorry in the sight of Malloy hunched over the bar, bearing the physical manifestations of the murder trust's greed and brutality. Before all this happened, Murphy and Malloy had found solace together in the bottle. Malloy was really the one person who treated Murphy like an equal for it was easy to see eye to eye when you were both lying drunk on the floor. Murphy decided it was time to come clean. I told him that he better keep away from here, otherwise that he was going to get fixed, what the bunch was going to do to him. Malloy listened to what Murphy said, and as if seeking clarity, stared thoughtfully into his glass. He looked at Murphy and nodded. Things were suddenly cast in a harsh new light. In its unflattering glare, the warmth and hospitality with which Marino had treated him suddenly lost its luster. It may have also explained the episodes in the park and on the street. For at least a moment, Murphy was convinced Malloy would heed his warnings and flee the speakeasy never to return again. But another sip of drink sorted the matter out. If they do anything to me, Malloy reportedly told him, they will suffer for it themselves. He had withstood the gang's impressive slapstick arsenal of cunning and deviousness. Who was to say he wouldn't survive the next harebrained scheme they concocted? And truth be told, Iron Mike had been suffering so much that maybe he decided to just let death come. At least this way, he could live out his final days in a comfortable alcoholic haze and God would deal with anyone who took his life. 
Unfortunately, tough Tony Bastone saw Red whispering to Mike and suspected what they were talking about. Afterwards, he privately threatened to kill Red if he tried to warn Mike off, so Red never again tried to help his friend. You said that some members of the murder trust were having second thoughts. Who else was? Tony Marino, the speakeasy owner. He was also about ready to give up on the project. He was willing to try one more time, but if that didn't work, he would call the whole thing off. So who came up with Plan 9? Pasqua the Undertaker. He decided that it was time to give up on getting paid double indemnity and go for something simple. So they would make it look like Iron Mike had died of natural causes, meaning they'd get only half the amount of money they initially hoped for. The plan was for Marino to look in the newspapers and find an apartment to rent. The only requirement was that it have a gas fixture on the wall, and in the 1930s, there were still old, rundown apartments that had natural gas lighting, even though more up-to-date places had electric lights. Red would then go and rent it as Mike's fictional brother. They'd get Mike drunk, take him to the apartment, and then they would stick a rubber hose in his mouth, connect it to the gas fixture on the wall, turn on the gas, and cause Mike to die from carbon monoxide poisoning. Afterwards, Pasqua would have a corrupt doctor he knew he could bribe come up and certify the death as natural causes. So that's plan nine. When did they put it into effect? On Tuesday, February 21st, 1933, they began searching for an apartment with a gas fixture. They found one less than a mile from the speakeasy. Red Murphy, pretending to be Joseph Mellory, went to it along with greengrocer David Kreisberg. The landlady, Mrs. Delia Murphy, showed it to them. She led them upstairs to the top floor and took them down a narrow hallway. She stopped in front of a door, unlocked it, and motioned for them to walk in and have a look around. The room was a squalid affair, boasting only the bare essentials and comfort. There was a bed against one wall with a small table next to it. There was a set of drawers, and in the wall opposite the bed, a nozzle to feed gas to the room's lighting fixture. Red paid Mrs. Murphy for the room, and then he and Kreisberg left. The next day, Wednesday, February 22nd, tough Tony Bastoni challenged Mike to another drinking duel, and soon Iron Mike was reeling drunk. Kreisberg, the greengrocer, estimated that he drank almost two quarts of smoke, while tough Tony only drank regular whiskey. When Mike collapsed, tough Tony raised his arms like a victorious heavyweight. Now the real work began. Marino ordered Murphy out from behind the bar and told him to pick Malloy up. Murphy bent down and managed to pull Malloy onto his feet, but Malloy's legs were gone. The man had to be dragged home, Kreisberg said. He was unconscious. Murphy slung one of his arms around Malloy's waist and wrapped one of Malloy's arms behind his neck. Marino told Murphy to take Malloy to the room at Fulton Avenue. This entailed dragging Malloy's dead weight about a mile. If the gang was trying to be inconspicuous, it was not going about it the right way. There was no time for Murphy to concoct an excuse to placate the inquiries of any curious passers-by he might come across. But nobody questioned Red as he and Mike staggered towards the apartment. When they got there, Miss Murphy, the landlady, was still awake. She heard the commotion and came to see what was going on. Red explained that Mike was his brother and he was gravely ill 
uh, something that Miss Murphy agreed with based on Mike's appearance. He was completely out of it and foaming at the mouth. Once Red got Mike up to the to the room, he put him in the bed and left a bottle of smoke near the bed. The idea was that if Mike woke up, he'd find the bottle of smoke and drink himself back to sleep. Red then went to the speakeasy, and from here, the witness accounts of what happened become unclear as they differ from one another. What is clear is that Red and the greengrocer, Kreisberg, came back to the apartment with a piece of rubber tubing. When they got there, the bottle of smoke was almost empty, so it had functioned as intended and Mike was out cold again. They then attached the rubber tubing to the gas fixture, but the tubing was too short. It wasn't going to reach. Murphy and Kreisberg stared stupidly at each other and then at the hose. Couldn't anything go according to plan? Murphy dropped the tube and, with Kreisberg's help, dragged Malloy off the bed and onto the floor. Malloy, out cold, didn't stir. The tube reached. Later, Murphy and Kreisberg accused each other of playing different roles in what happened next, but one way or another, the gas was turned on, it went into Mike's lungs, and he passed on to his eternal reward on Wednesday, February 22, 1933. Plan 9 had worked, and the unkillable Iron Mike Malloy was finally dead. God rest his soul. But that's only part of the story. And if you think the murder trust displayed incompetence in all its numerous attempts to kill Iron Mike, wait until next week when we'll tell you what happened next. Oh, man. In the meantime, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to Simon Reed's book, On the House, The Bizarre Killing of Michael Malloy, Deborah Bloom's book, The Poisoner's Handbook, uh, information about Michael Malloy, also a uh, video from Today I Found Out on that time the U.S. government intentionally poisoned and killed over 10,000 of its citizens, uh, information about the earliest confirmed alcoholic beverages, as well as prohibition, prohibition in the United States, the 18th Amendment, the Great Depression, and double indemnity. All right, so that's it from us for this time. Until next time, we'd love to hear what your theories are about Iron Mike Malloy and the murder trust that killed him. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. You can check out the work that they do by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. Um, while you're there, I, I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification when I put up a video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I do. We're closing in on 40,000 subscribers, at least at the time of recording. Would love to get there soon. So thank you for liking and subscribing. Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? 
Next week, we'll tell you what happened with the murder trust after they finally killed Iron Mike. And like I said, if you think they displayed incompetence in their efforts so far, you'll want to hear what happened next. Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 257. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit SQPN.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Catholics of Oz. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash oz.